0: Have you ever had a friend that is so convinced about some kind of miracle food that they just become really, really annoying, right? Uh, This is, it seems to have happened more and more in recent years, this idea that if you just eat this one thing, it's going to fix your life. Do you have acne? Do you have cancer? Do you have male pattern baldness? You know, are you infertile? Whatever it is, if you need to fix it, it is all merely the symptom of not eating enough kumquats, right? And so these people just go crazy, like you got to eat this thing; it's going to fix everything. And you're like, if that would fix everything, you know, there would be no sick people in the countries that fruit comes from. But there are, so it seems to suggest that that's not the way that you fix everything. Uh, Maybe you were even um, fooled into giving Tom Brady $200 for the TB12 nutritional uh, method. I don't know. Some of you are new to New England. You don't know. Tom was selling a $200 cookbook where he taught you how to master all of the right foods. And it seemed like the key to longevity and health is not eating strawberries. Apparently strawberries are terribly dangerous for us. And as long as we avoid strawberries, we will all be fit as a fennel, just like good old Tom. And it's annoying to us because we know that it's it's simplistic. We know that in our lives, we experience things that are far more complex than that. And that one food is not going to fix all of these problems because we know those problems are pervasive and difficult to handle. I am suspicious... I don't know how you will receive this. That in the church, we have been peddling a miracle fix to everything for a very long time. Now, if that was Jesus, that would be a decent answer, right? Like a kid in Sunday school, what's the answer to the question? Generally, Jesus works, right? But that is not our miracle cure. I think, if we're honest, for a long time we've been telling the world that if you just get married, Marriage is the miracle cure for all kinds of spiritual illness, right? Uh, Maybe you've never heard a preacher say that intuitively or uh, explicitly. Maybe you've never heard that from the pulpit. Uh, But if you have a friend, particularly a middle-aged friend who is still single, and you ask them what the church experience is like, they will tell you it is an overwhelming barrage of reminders of the fact that I don't have a spouse I look at the church budget and its children's ministry and its youth ministry and its young couples and it's all of this stuff. And the church has sort of held up the family as this fix for so many things. If you want happiness and good life and contentment, have a happy marriage, right? Happy wife, happy life is kind of what we have subtly said for a long so in our sermon series, we've been talking about the book of Matthew and the ways that Matthew sort of flips our world upside down. And we have gotten to a passage that is explicitly about marriage, where Jesus speaks about how marriage works, how divorce works, and why it's important, and how we should think about it. And we're going to spend a little time today, and I would uh, consider uh, ask us to consider that Jesus, just as he's turned our world upside down throughout Matthew, when he's talked about various topics and how his kingdom and his rule is different than what the world might expect, that we allow that even for the topic of marriage. That the words that Jesus might have for us about the value and worth and, and role of marriage in our culture and our society and our churches might be something that surprises us. It might be something that requires us to readjust. How we think about things, particularly when we ask, "What is marriage really capable of? What can, what kind of weight can we put on it fairly, based on what God has taught us in Scripture?" So, uh, we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter nineteen. Uh, so, Matthew nineteen verse one, when Jesus had finished saying these things, these things being the things about. Um, last week we talked about children and little ones and Jesus' protectiveness of children and how he engaged in people who would cause a child to stumble. He finishes saying those things. He, leave, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Uh, The story begins like many stories in Jesus' life, that the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up. They are trying to make Jesus look bad. And so immediately, uh, they find some kind of controversial topic to talk about, and they decide divorce would be a good one. Uh, For almost all of these debates, if you look into first century Judaism, you will find that there were different rabbinic schools that had sort of different ideas about how to handle issues, and divorce was one of those. And so they come to Jesus and they ask him uh, a question that it's, it's totally a setup. Do you think that a man can get rid of his wife for any and every reason? Um, we see in this passage sort of the general cultural attitude towards marriage and women, which is disturbing to us. Uh, notice that it is not, can someone divorce their spouse for any reason? It's, may a man divorce his wife for any reason? In the ancient world, even in ancient Judaism, divorce was pretty cheap and easy for men. Uh, There are even extreme stories of women who kind of fell into their fire pits uh, at home while they were cooking and died from being burned alive. And everyone went, oh, shucks, too bad. Well, hey, that girl you've been hanging out with, you can marry her now, right? You know, there's just kind of this general attitude that wives were disposable. And so um, the Pharisees are reflecting this cultural value of easy, cheap divorce. Can a man just get rid of his wife because he's tired of her? And they want to see how Jesus responds to kind of that prevalent idea in the culture around him. And so what Jesus does is he upholds, first of all, uh, the uh, divine nature of women, right? That's a very, sounds like a very heavy way to say it. But he says, when God created humanity, he created humanity, both male and female. His first response when thinking about marriage and divorce is, no, you can't just divorce your wife for any reason. Because she's created in the image of God. and She deserves dignity and honor just as much as you do. You are both co-bearers of the image of God. And so this is the place that Jesus begins. I think it is difficult for us to realize how countercultural and how sort of feminist Jesus is in his answer here. That he says, no, you need to treat your wife with respect and you need to understand that she's in the image of God. And ultimately, when you guys were put together, God was combining you in a very deep, almost mystical, spiritual way. He was connecting you in a way that you shouldn't sort of easily separate. He uses this phrase that I always like to use when I do a wedding. What God has brought together, let no person try to tear apart. Right? This is God's work that's happening here. And so Jesus immediately uh, gets, uh, sees sort of this cultural vow, um, lack of value for women and marriage and wives. And he rejects it. And he says, no. When we talk about marriage, it cannot be this sort of uneven relationship. The wife deserves honor just as much as the husband does because they both bear the image of Christ. And this really should not surprise us. As we see God described throughout scripture, God is always a God of faithfulness and fidelity. We see God's relationship with Israel as a nation or his relationship with Moses or David as leaders. And we see that God gets so annoyed with his people and yet he always remains faithful. Uh, If you think about it, and I think sometimes we miss this, There are times in Scripture where God goes, listen, if you do this thing, we're done. We are finished. And then they do the thing, and then there's punishment, and then he's still back, right? Because God just cannot bear to lose his bride, Israel. And he stays with her no matter how unfaithful and unfair she is. And so it's not a surprise that Jesus would say, you should reflect that attribute of God that you remain committed to your relationships. Because if God can put up with all the junk that David did and still love him, then you can put up with some of the junk that your spouse might do, right? So it doesn't surprise us that Jesus comes out very highly valuing um, this idea of commitment to a bride. Uh, Then he keeps talking. Why then, they talk, why then, they ask, did Moses command... That a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. It's a fascinating word. Moses commanded. Did Moses command divorce? <laughs> right? That's. It's interesting how they phrase that. And Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. Um, this, uh, we can just, we need to stop and take kind of a, a exegetical nerd look real quick. at something very fascinating that Jesus does here. Um, Jesus, when asked about marriage, says, in Genesis, this happened. And they go, well, what about Moses? And God says, Adam is more important than Moses right now. This is very common in your New Testament, How do you accept Gentiles into the church? Well, if you're Paul, you say the faith of Abraham is more important than the faith of Moses. You'll notice that the Jewish people of the first century were constantly saying, Moses, 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 Moses. And the New Testament church consistently says, there's a little bit of Bible before Moses. And what God does in creation and what he does in the patriarchs matters as much or more than what he does in the law of Moses. Um, that's kind of uh, an aside. It doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the sermon today, but it is fascinating to understand how Jesus read his Bible and the ways and the things that Jesus um, looked at when he talked about these issues. Um, clearly, this is a gotcha from the Pharisees. They've set him up with like, hey, should divorce be easy and cheap and free? And he know, they know that he's going to be pro-commitment to marriage, right? So Jesus comes out like that. There's no, you shouldn't just throw away your wives because you don't love them. And then they go, oh yeah, well, what about Moses? It is the counterpunch that they were anticipating to throw. And Jesus says, you don't get Moses. That wasn't because Moses liked divorce. It's because Moses knew that you were idiots and he knew that you weren't going to be able to handle this thing well. And so he accommodated your sinfulness. This again is very interesting. The idea that the law of Moses, in Jesus' mind on this matter, was merely an accommodation for human sinfulness. But there now is a higher ethical standard coming in place. Um, Again, we could get into a whole lecture about that and Jesus (laughs) approached the law of Moses. But anyways, um, Jesus says, no, let's aim higher. Let's do something different here. And that different thing is we are not going to get divorced. Unless somebody cheats on you. All right. So we have to talk about this. Um, This is a passage that in a lot of churches and maybe even for some of you personally has been barked at you from a pulpit about why divorce is so terrible. And it became a very strict like legalistic thing uh, to basically um, just beat down people who've been divorced. Right. Right. That this verse has been used that way many times. Um, A full lesson on all of the things that the Bible says about divorce would be difficult. Uh, I would like to note a few things. Uh, The first thing I'd like to devote uh, to note is that God does call himself a divorcee in the prophets. Uh, We tend to forget that. Um, But there is a point where he says, I have ripped your certificate of divorce away from me to uh, his people. So it is interesting that God describes himself as such. Um, The other thing that I think is just really, really important here is that if you try to make this an ironclad rule, you're doing something that Paul isn't ready to do. Uh, If you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about divorce, and Paul says, uh, Paul has a new issue. And Paul's new issue is that he has a church full of Gentiles and Jews, and Uh, Well, full of Gentiles. There are Jews in the church as well, but he has a church that suddenly has Gentile people in it that didn't used to be there, right? And so what's happening is he meets Bob and Susie, and Susie becomes a Christian, and Bob doesn't. And then Bob is coming, and he goes, I married a good worshiper of Artemis, and now I'm stuck with this weird Christian. I don't want this anymore. I want to divorce her. And they're asking Paul, what do we do? Because we know, we've heard it said, that Jesus says adultery is the only grounds for divorce. But our husband wants to leave me because he's not a Christian. What do I do? And Paul's response is, and it's really interesting because he says, I'm telling you this, not the Lord. In other words, this is the best that I can figure it out. He says, if you have a pagan spouse that wants to leave you because you became a Christian, just let him go. You're fine. You're free. Go get remarried. Um, There was undoubtedly some guy in that church who went, but Paul, Jesus said this really, really strict rule. And Paul's like, okay, but this situation popped up and this situation is different. And we've got to be flexible enough that when something comes up that we didn't anticipate, you know, like this law was not meant to bind us. This was Jesus' directions to try to... Teach us to have high commitment levels. And now that we have another circumstance, we've got to deal with that. One of the things that I are commonly asked in this context is, what does someone who has an abusive spouse do? Should they stay with an abusive spouse? And this is one of those places where I would say, I say, but not the Lord, right? I can't give you a Bible verse for this, but no, don't stay there. You're going to get killed. Like, that's not a good idea. And that we can do good theological logic and that we're not supposed to have rules here that where we go, well, technically according to blah, 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 you can't do this. I think even Paul teaches us that, you know, life happens sometimes in ways we don't expect. And so we do our best to honor God in it. Um, I think that it is important here um, that the major, the major takeaway from Jesus here is he has a really high v- value in marriage. And he has a high value on commitment. And so he would say, do what you can to stay together. If God brought you together, don't tear it apart. And to take that high value of commitment and to turn it into a club that you beat people with, I just think it's not using the scripture particularly the way God wants you to. So the disciples then have this fascinating sentence. If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, It's better not to get married. What a bunch of bozos. Okay, this is just one of the worst comments I feel like that we get from the disciples in the history of the Gospels. Basically, what they say is like, oh, man, if I've got to keep this woman forever, I'm not getting married. Are you kidding me? I mean, they they were really enjoying their escape hatch. They were liking the idea that somewhere down the line, they could just... Stump her if they were tired of her. And so <laughs> the disciples are like, Sheesh, if that's the way it's going to work, I better not get married at all. Um, honestly, this is the way, I just saw research about this, this is the way millennials <laughs> are handling marriage. They're like, no, I'm not getting married because then the divorce thing would be hard. And like, I'm, no, 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 we're not going to do that, right? Um, it's fascinating to me that these men had such an ingrained sort of misogynistic approach To marriage and the disposability of a wife, that when Jesus says something as simple as, when you marry a woman, stay with her, they go, Well, that ruins all the fun. And you just see the depth of the darkness of the hearts of even these men who are following Jesus. If I can't just dump her whenever I want, I'm not going to sign up. And Jesus just kind of rolls with that and then goes, to a much more spiritual conversation. Not everyone can accept this word. In other words, that you shouldn't run into marriage so quickly. But only those to whom it's been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. All right, there's a lot to unpack here. Treacherous things to unpack. Uh, let me start with the first one. And I'm, some of you will find me to be a very old-fashioned old man here. Um, when Jesus talks about sex and marriage, and they say, well, geez, Jesus, some people should just never get married at all, he goes, you're right. For some people, celibacy is a good option. That is a dichotomy in Jesus' mind. You get married or you stay celibate. Um, that sounds really old-fashioned in the world that we live in, in a world where premarital sex is kind of not a big deal and sort of culturally accepted is okay. Uh, and I know for maybe some of you, you're like, oh boy, this is old school. But I can't understand Jesus another way. I believe in the mind of Jesus Christ. You were celibate or you were married. And that sex and marriage go together, and that if you do either without the other, it doesn't work out really well. Let me repeat that just so it's clear. Sex and marriage go together well, and if you do either without the other, it's not a good situation. And I just, I, I, it's, that's what I think was in Jesus' mind. There's several places in the New Testament, we get this hint, that marriage and sexuality go together that the act of giving yourself to someone else at that, that level of intimacy requires a level of commitment that sort of grounds you emotionally and spiritually that this person is not going to leave me. And so Jesus, interestingly, when they go, well, we can't get married, he's right, he goes, you're, you're right. Some of you shouldn't get married. Celibacy is a great option for you. And that's very fascinating that he immediately makes uh, that jump from one of those places to the other place. The other thing that Jesus does is he starts talking about eunuchs. And for some of us, we start going like, what? Where are we going? Right? Like we just, this is something we're not familiar with. Eunuchs are people, I mean, they still exist to this day, but in the ancient world, the eunuch was generally someone who was castrated before puberty for a variety of reasons, um, mostly so that they could be a, a official in the royal household. Right. If you're a king and you want to make sure that your wife or a member of your harem or one of your daughters didn't end up pregnant from one of your royal servants, you just guaranteed that one of your royal servants wasn't capable of getting them pregnant. Right. This is just avoided all sorts of scandals. And more importantly, avoid for them, avoided. Um, um, Sort of children that were not their own that would create other paths to the throne, other lineages that would create sort of the the royal succession, right? So they often would um, castrate people and make them sort of royal servants for life. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with this even uh, even until like the late 1800s. Sometimes this would happen for um, singing purposes. You've maybe heard of uh, male singers called, like, castratos, I believe is the word, where they would have a very high voice because before they went through puberty, they would be castrated, and then they would be able to sing very high for the rest of their life. There's actually, I saw this week, there's audio recordings of, like, the last one or two of these men uh, that you can actually listen to that were made with very early, like, phonograph machines. That's really uh, off topic. But anyways, Jesus, fascinatingly, gives us these three categories— um, he says, there are some people who are born eunuchs. I don't want to overmake this point, but this is really, I think, important for us. We're dealing in a day and age where we're talking about various um, issues as far as gender and sexuality. And one of the things that has come up is the issue of people who are called intersex, who are kind of not very distinctly male nor female. Or both. Or, yeah, right, just, there's ambiguity, they've got different chromosomes, there's all sorts of different things that this can be. And I have heard Christian people go, well, that's such a small percentage of the population. Why is it worth talking about? It is fascinating to me that even Jesus was aware of people who were born with less than, you know, what we think of as traditional or typical anatomy. And that he would make mention of them. And that when he started thinking about these issues, they were in his mind. Jesus was aware of what we call intersex people, and he acknowledges them here. He goes, there are people who are born eunuchs. There are people who are born sexually ambiguous or have sort of um, just different issues than what we would expect. And it's just fascinating to me that Jesus was aware of them and comments on them just quickly. He then moves to that second category, those who are made eunuchs, those who usually work in these royal households or have these various reasons why they have been made eunuchs. And then that final category, he says, is those who choose to be eunuchs for the kingdom. Um, What Jesus starts to talk about here is something that we're pretty familiar with is people who say, I'm going to just forego the whole marriage and kids thing because I want to serve God. And I want to put all my time and all my energy into it. Um, This is where Jesus identifies the biggest problem with getting married. And that is, it takes a lot of time and a lot of work. Right? I mean, just having a relationship with another person just takes effort. And so when you look at this, Jesus says, you know, there are some people who are going to go, if I'm not, like, hashing out, we all know we have fights from time to time, right? I think we're all married in this room, uh, unfortunately for the sermon. But, you know, you have times where you just, like, you blow an evening on a stupid fight over who turned off the, the, the curling iron or something, right? And Jesus, I think, would say, you know, you could have, you could have fed some poor children during that time. Right? And it's not that Jesus doesn't know that you're going to have those times, but he says some people are so engaged in God's work that they just don't have time to be married. They don't have time to have kids. Um, my life is so different today than when we first started planting this church as far as like I have to fit my ministry work into more defined boxes because I have four little girls that all need like attention and effort and face-to-face time, right? And I'm not complaining about that, but it's just different. You get married, you have kids, that takes a different energy, and it pulls away from the time you have to serve and to do ministry. And so this is why we're particularly familiar with sort of uh, Catholic approaches to this, where there's certain people that devote themselves to doing God's work. And what's interesting is that Jesus kind of lives that life, and he honors that life here. He says, if you can accept that, you should go ahead and do it. Um, I want to read a little bit from 1 Corinthians because Peter sort of re-emphasizes this in a way that I think honors what Jesus says and fills out what Jesus says and kind of helps us understand what they're getting at. Now, for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man, this is what they wrote to him, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is based on their Greek dualism where they think the body is gross, and so they're like, if you could avoid sex, that would make you more spiritual. Paul says, Since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except for mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer... Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So I think Paul kind of, um, Paul kind of here lays out very similarly to what Jesus says. And basically the idea is this. Some of you are wired emotionally, mentally, sexually, etc. That you can live sort of a celibate life of singleness and engage in ministry and that will work for you. And Paul says that's the gift I have if I have my way, I wish all of you people were that way. It's interesting that Jesus, who to the best of our knowledge, was also single his whole life, also says, if you can accept that, please do. Um, the default position of the New Testament is that singleness is better than marriage. Marriage is a concession for people that aren't given the gift of singleness. I think that's really important, and it's not to make any of us feel bad for being married. But I think that's really important because in the church, we have held up marriage so high. And yet here are both Jesus and Paul going, if you can be single and not getting yourself into all sorts of bad situations, then do it. Now, some of you aren't going to be able to handle that. You know, I mean... (laughs) Put it crassly, some of you are too horny to handle this, okay? We just cannot trust you to do this the right way. And so for you, fine, go get married. But if you are capable of living not married, that's good. Um, My point here, and as we look at what Jesus says about marriage and what Paul says about marriage, is doesn't make anyone feel bad. It's to say that there are lots of ways to honor God, And that marriage is not the fixer of all things. It can actually be a problem. Okay? Uh, Marriage is not, you know, this um, perfect way to fix something. It can be both a blessing and a curse. It can be a necessity for some and unimportant for others. And you've got to live your life the way you feel like God's calling you to. So for some of us, not technically, but for someone listening on this podcast... Uh, Being single and being happy being single is great. You've got time and energy to serve God in a way that married people don't. You have a leanness to your life that provides you opportunities to do incredible things. And so if you are single and that is working for you, praise God. You are honoring the tradition of Jesus and Paul in doing your work for the kingdom. And do not let any stupid church person, even if they're sitting in the pulpit, somehow make you feel like you're less because you're not married. That's ridiculous. If anything, the church person should be mocking the married people as the weak-willed folks that don't have the spiritual gifts necessary to do it the hardcore way, right? And this thing where we've upheld marriage and denigrated singleness is so opposite to the heart of Jesus, that we cannot do it in our churches. We have to find ways to tell single folks that they are important and to support them, to provide. Um, we don't talk nearly enough about platonic friendship and the importance that that can play in our lives. We don't ne- nearly enough to talk about sort of housing and how we can help single people have good living situations where they have people to share their lives with. We probably should have more single folks living in the context of extended family, or even, you know, like in the same building as maybe a, a family of four, right? But still loving and connecting with each other and having dinner. Together. Like, there's all kinds of cool, creative options for connection and friendship and relationship that the church should be providing our single brothers and sisters who are doing incredible work for the kingdom that we don't because we've got our heads so stuck in the marriage world that we just kind of leave them out to dry. And we've got to get better about that. Um, Second of all, some of you may be single and you hate it and you're saying, I do not have this gift. There are a variety of psychosocial, spiritual, sexual things going on in your brain that tells you that when Paul and Jesus talk about sort of a gift of single celibacy, you go, that ain't me. In that case, please go get Christianfarmer.com or whatever you need to do and find somebody and be blessed in that. It is okay to want to get married. To hold up the singleness is not to then bow, browbeat people who don't want to be single, who don't feel called to be single. Paul is very clear that it is a gift, and just like spiritual gifts, some people have them, and some don't, because God gives it to it, whoever he gives it to, whoever he desires. And so sometimes you got it, sometimes you don't. And so if you're single and you don't want to be and you don't think you're called to be and you don't have that gift, that's fine. Please, we bless you. Go find a spouse. That would be lovely. And finally, for those of us who are married, um, be committed to it. God's joined you together. And he is giving you an opportunity to experience something. Uh, You will have less time and energy for the kingdom, but he will also uh, teach you how to be a little bit like Jesus. Loving a spouse, Paul says, is a mystery, but it teaches us how to love one another like Jesus loves the church. And we learn something about God in marriage. So be committed to it. Be with it. Hang in there. God has brought you together. Don't tear it apart. Um that all of these things are sort of held up by Jesus in this passage. Um, Marriage can be an idol. I really am convinced, I'm sorry if this is my soapbox, but that marriage and family are the great idol of the American church. That it is the thing that will fix everything. If I only get married, my heart will be whole. But what about Jesus? He's fine, but I really want to get married. And loving your Savior so deeply that the status of your, you know, wedding ring doesn't really matter as much is something that's hard. For those for of us who are married, if we're like, what's more important, the love of Jesus or spouse? We go, well, definitely Jesus. And you're like, really? Think about it really deeply. Which would be harder for you, to lose your faith or to lose your spouse? And for many of us, it'd be harder to lose our spouse than lose our faith. And I think that's a sign of an idolatry that we can hold in our hearts. That ultimately all of these things point us to Jesus. They're not ends, they are means. And I think Jesus would say that, and Paul would say that in these things about marriage. Uh, Most importantly is just allow this, whatever state you are in, to serve God. That's the way Paul ends it. Because if you're married, awesome. If you're single, awesome. Whatever you're doing, give all of this over To his kingdom. You can be a great married or single Christian, and so push, lean into whatever, wherever you're at right now, and to use it for its greatest benefit, so that you can better understand the kingdom of God. Um, And if we keep those sort of priorities straight, uh, God can use our situation uh, any way He needs to. All right, Uh, I went long today. Uh, Q and A. Let me, let me nuance that in a couple important ways. First one being um, married people get a different perspective on God and the love of Christ in the church, but I don't want to call that a better perspective. It's just a different perspective. Okay. In the same way that I think parents understand God as a father in a way that people who don't have children don't often get as intuitively But that doesn't mean, oh, I'm, you know, like, if you look at an infertile couple and you say, well, sorry, you just can't experience God as good as people who can have a baby. That's terrible, okay? (laughs) So I wouldn't call it better. I would just call it different. Uh, And Also, it's not that single people can better serve God. It's just purely a time thing. Like, and I, I feel comfortable saying this, single people have more time than married people and people with kids, because relationships take time to maintain. Romantic relationships take maintenance time and energy, and children take time and energy. And so I think what Paul and Peter, Paul and Peter, Paul and Jesus say here is that you've just got more raw resource. Now, that being said, you can be single and fret away every bit of that resource, on, you know, playing video games. That's really possible. I think there's lots of people who are doing that today. Um, but, so it's, it's not that you're necessarily better off. It's just that, you know, it's a simple thing. When I say, um, next Saturday, we're going to do a cleanup day at the church. If you've had a a, a date day planned for a while with your spouse, you're going, oh, I can't go because of my date. Or if your kid's got a soccer game, you're like, oh, i got to be at the soccer fields. Single people will go, oh, generally. I mean, they might have work, or they might have a friendship, or whatever. But generally, they are far more likely to go, yeah, schedule's clear. I can do that. Or I can move something around. Um, it's just the, 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 the hamster wheel that is wife and kids or husband and kids um, can just take up our time. Right, right. So, does that mean God's anti-kids? And I think what Paul would say, if I had to get in his brain, my guess, would be, Jesus does a really good job of handing out the celibacy gift in a proper proportion. Does that make sense? So Paul's very clear that the single people, people who should stay single, are those who have been given the spiritual gift of being able to exist as a single person in a healthy, holistic way. And God's not going to give that to 100% of people. He's going to give it to some portion of people. And the portion who don't get that gift, they can work on repopulating the next generation of Christians or the next generation of humanity. And there'll be plenty of them. Right. Like uh, my experience is uh, there's a songwriter I always loved. He's he had this line in a song where he's lamenting his singleness. And he says, it seems that I have the gift that no one wants to have. Right? And this is kind of the truth in the church sometimes, is that when we talk about singleness and celibacy as a gift, uh, just, dear God, please don't let it be under my tree. <laughs> right? Um, and so I think the idea is not that the church is anti-children or the church shouldn't have children. It's that um, there will be people who will be given the gift of celibacy, and they obviously won't have kids. And there are people who won't, and they obviously will. And awesome. That's fine. And there will be plenty of children around because God is not so foolish as to give out so much of the celibacy gift that we're, you know, dying a generation. Witness the feast church. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, and to be fair, when I preach on this, I do lean heavier on the single side, because if you look around the room... Most of us have already signed up for the other side, right? And so I sort of try to give more credence to the other because I don't have to convince anyone in this room that wanting to have a spouse is okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, so thanks. And, and I will say, again, this is a Caleb says, not the Lord. Um, I think we really haven't spent enough time we combine wanting to be a parent and wanting to be married so heavily. Um, And I know there are Christian people who disagree with me on this. I don't think they have to be. I think we have so many kids waiting for adoption and foster care and stuff. If you want to live life as a single lady or a single guy, and at some point when you're ready, bring a, you know, adopt a child, like, that's a beautiful, holy thing. And it's like, you don't, I don't know, I don't think you have to get married just to, to have that experience of having a child, you know? like, But that's one of those things where we're so locked into a certain path that I think we have not considered the things God could let us do. Yeah, and it's frankly sandwiched because there's teachings in the, the chapter before about children and there's a teaching right after about children. So this whole marriage thing is sandwiched right between two passages by kids. Yeah, yeah Certainly, one of the challenges, for I think, for families is how do we serve as a family? Right? Like, can I think that there are great ways that you make family time and serving the church time together? I mean, no. Okay, granted, this is me, right? Like, for my kids, them being at church is part of when they get to hang out with dad, and they know that that's part of life, you know?